Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well, but I am anticipating my right arm is going to get very tired from holding this microphone. That's right. We are in our mobile podcasting studio here. So uh, holding our mics instead of uh, using our fancy uh, mic stands back at home. Also, I mean, it's frankly, it's been a while since we've done a new recording. So I think we're both a little rusty. I had to remind you to pick up your microphone. Well, usually I don't. It's usually in a mic stand. But, uh, Just right in front of you, ready to go. We are into the new year, though, and happy new year. Yes, hopefully everyone had a great holiday. Uh, I'm very excited. We are now, I guess, we're at like kind of quitters week. So this week's episode, I think, is going to keep you on track for whatever your New Year's resolution is. Week now. This is like Boxing Day. Yeah. It's become a whole week. Exactly. Yeah, they've really gone from quitters day being, I believe it was like January 17th to now it's like the 16th through the 28th is really like quitters time. It's just like that time where most people abandon their New Year's resolutions. But again, like I say, I think Remy on this episode today is going to convince you to stick with whatever it is that you have on tap. Uh, Remy Cluse is an adventurer, a mountaineer. She's done all of the seven seven summits, uh, which we get into what exactly that is if you're not familiar with mountaineering lingo. But suffice to say, it is a lot. Uh, and honestly, it's at least seven. At least seven. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, It is such an inspiring, fun conversation. So, you know, whether you're thinking about wanting to climb Everest or Denali or any of those, or, you know, you want to do your first hundred mile gravel race or running race or whatever the heck, uh, I think this episode's a really good one for just really talking about how you don't have to be this, you know, kind of imaginary person in order to achieve these goals. Uh, Remy was not, she didn't grow up doing these climbs or anything. This is a really like a bit later in life. I mean, she's still pretty young, but like later in life decision to do this. Uh, and you know, she, she made it happen and there's, as she'll tell you, like, there's nothing special or super unique or super powered about her. She just kind of has figured it out one step at a time, sure. uh, literally one step Well, and I'm time. excited that we're getting into some of these other sports, uh, you know, a little outside of our usual running or, and cycling and yeah, strength, remember, strength training. Remember back when we used to interview like NFL players? That's that right. was weird. And, and what we like about that is that there's so many of these similarities in the training, in the mindset, the tools, the tactics. Uh, you know, just how do you keep going, you know, over this mountain, but then you still have six more mountains. And then even on that mountain, you know, working step by step or base camp by base camp or whatever the, the increment is, you know, definitely relates to, you know, mile by mile or mm-hmm. race by race, season by season. Yeah. And what I also really liked about that is also, what do you do when you've hit all seven summits? Oh, that's nice. Yes. The Ironman burnout. This is like the, exactly. seven, the seven summit burnout. And I mean, this can take years to accomplish, which I think actually the bigger the goal, I think the harder the potential letdown oh, is. Yeah. The peak. Bigger the peak, the harder, the harder the fall. <laughs> and we do talk about, yeah, what what do you do when you've accomplished that huge goal that you thought was going to take decades? Mm-hmm. So, all right. I think we should get into this. Let the, let the mindset uh, motivation just wash over you and enjoy this conversation with Remy Cluse. 
All right. Remy, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited. We're finally getting to do this. Thank you for having me, Molly. And I'm super excited. I'm like in awe of everything you do. So just excited, excited to have this opportunity. Oh my gosh. Well, the feeling is very, very mutual. And side note, I tend to, uh, whenever we finish the podcast, I always do like a little dancey thing. So I'm glad that you've kicked it off with that. That means we're going to get along real good. Okay. Okay, So I want to start with your bio um, because I love that you've kind of embraced these multiple identities. And I think that's just so, so important. It's such an important part of your story. So I'm going to read it here. I'm a passionate adventurer, high altitude mountaineer, free spirit, sustainability specialist, and mental health ambassador. Realized that's a mouthful, but for the longest time, I didn't know where I fitted in until I realized I did not have to. Okay. I love it. How long did it take you to come up with this bio and sort of finally like put it all together and realize that you could be all of the things? Um, You know, it took a while. I think they're often in one's journey and story, there is a very significant pivotal point where you start reassessing and reflecting and um, and it was, it took a while to embody that, but once I realized it, the putting the words and the bio together came pretty naturally because I, because I felt it from my heart. Um, but yeah, I just, I just to elaborate on that bio, like I didn't identify with, you know, you know how it's even as silly as, you know, on your Instagram page, when people like put athlete under their name or they put mm-hmm. like, um, so, something under their name, I'm like, I feel weird putting anything under my name. Like, this is not who I am. I'm just a bit of everything. And I do a bit of everything really well, but not elite in anything. And I kind of really, really, I'm like, this is, but this is cool because I get to have fun in the process. And I, I think the lesson through that is to, I strongly, what's worked for me, it's taken time, is to not place my identity too much in one thing. Because that's yeah. when, that's when things can go pear-shaped. When ultimately things don't work out how we envisage them, then um, if we have focused too much of our identity in that thing, then it's like, oh, the world's crumbling. <laughs> 100%, Okay, so with all of these different things that go into kind of creating your life, I, I realize it's gonna say, you're gonna say every day is different, but what does this sort of look like in terms of of your life right now? Like, how much time are you spending doing the adventuring? How much time is you know in front of the computer doing the the prep or the the presentations and stuff that go along with it? What's what's a day in the life, week in the life, month in the life look like here? Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head with what you said. There is no blueprint at the moment. Um, what started off so just some context um I was being to uh, I was in a big corporate and worked at a property company in sustainability in the built environment so green building resource efficiency um all of that like how can we make our built environment just um that much more efficient and really really enjoyed my job and was really good at it and um just reached a point where uh there was a lot going on in my life and I went through a pretty um, a heart-wrenching breakup and that was the catalyst for me. Uh, although I was, you know, doing well at work and I was still me, I like this happy, positive person, but inside I wasn't okay. And there needed to be a lot of work 
and introspection and the breakup was just the catalyst to that and so after being in corporate for for these years uh, I decided to for the first time like challenge myself from a, from an adventure point of view and I don't know why there was nothing significant that led me to that decision it was just like I want to climb Kilimanjaro or you know and and I wasn't even really into hiking and climbing at the time. I had nothing against it, but I was just living in Johannesburg, which is a very, very dense city in South Africa. And so once I, then a few months later, I was, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro and um, standing on the roof of Africa and realized, oh, wow, I had this very big soulful connection to the mountains specifically and the high altitude mountains. And so then the curiosity was sparked. And that, that catapulted me on this journey of like, of looking at my mental health. I think I didn't quite, that wasn't really clear earlier when I said like uh, that the, the breakup was a catalyst and I wasn't okay. It was like severe anxiety, depression as a young teenager. And just, I think adventure gave me, well, I know adventure started giving me tools to add to my toolkit to deal, help me cope better with mental health and a lot of a lot of people find that counterintuitive because they think adventure there's so much unknown there's so much like things that could go wrong like all these things like surely you're just so anxious out there but it's a it's a complete opposite I'm not sure if you can relate but uh adventure yes it is super unknown but it's when you do it in, in a in a in a uh progressive way you're not just throwing yourself into like climbing Everest from the beginning firstly that's highly irresponsible but like it's progression and the curiosity and with that I started developing this toolkit of like oh this is how I can deal with this when I feel like this and that's what I got through adventure okay so we had that corporate journey and then I took a sabbatical started doing um, more adventures started getting curious started realizing actually I'm really good at this high altitude thing Coming from Cape Town, we're at sea level. There's no snow, no high mountains. Our highest mountain is like 3,000 meters. So it was it was a very interesting journey and a very, not not a solo journey from like, um, no one from South Africa was like, hey, I'll come join you. You know, it was like, and so after that sabbatical, I came back and I'd climbed a few mountains and I realized, okay, there are a couple more mountains I'd really love to, to climb. And then, if, thing, if I still feel the way I'm feeling, I think the seven summits would be on the cards. Then, only then I would have made that decision. So then how life looked like is I would look for sponsorship to climb the bigger peaks that were more expensive. And by that time, I'd after climbing a few of these reasonably challenging peaks coming from Cape Town, South Africa, my, I'd started creating the story that people were following along. Um, speaking about mental health, raising money for charities. And so people were invested in, in me and the story I was sharing and could relate. And they were like, hey, this is cool. Because also like, you know, coming from the, where I came from, it wasn't like I was primed to be this like hardcore athlete from a young age. It's like at any point, like pivot your life, dream these crazy dreams. Yes, I wear these floral summer dresses, but hey, I can also carry 30 kgs on my back and crush you, you know? So it's like, just leveling the playing fields and being like anyone can do this really I'm nothing special um and and talking that narrative and so that's how that's how and so I was doing public speaking um spreading the message trying to raise um money for the climbs 
um, and then doing some consulting in between, but really just trying to get enough uh, financial flow to just fund the next, next expedition. So that's what that period of my life looked like. So let's say a few years. And then for the last couple of years now, I've also been guiding. So I've been doing leading treks to Everest Base Camp, leading treks up Kilimanjaro. I uh, was involved with help assisting at, at the first blind woman attempt for climbing Mount Everest. Um, yeah, that could be a podcast wow. for help. Hey, we should get Sean on this podcast, Molly. Yeah. Let's Oh my gosh, she is yes. such a badass. She's an blind adventurer. Blind That's incredible. Adventurer. Oh my gosh. And I was yeah, part of her Everest journey and it was uh, life-changing. Um, so that's now that's how my life kind of looks like now. Now I'm focusing on how can I help realize, uh, help other people realize their climbing dreams. Um, and then I'm also heavily focused on uh, mentorships in the young adults, in young adults. So curating adventure programs for schools and then um, weaving in the psychology and, and, and the, you know, um, giving them the tools that I never had. But I feel like there's such a huge gap in, in society where kids need help. They don't want to sit in an office and speak to psychologists. They need adventure just levels everything you know on a hike you're not there's no pressure and there's just this immediate connection because you're bonding outdoors and and I feel like that is going to be such a game changer if we start integrating this more into our teenage the teenagers and also even like early 20s so that's kind of my life and at the moment then I also work with um a few uh, sustainable brands and do different campaign activations for them using my voice in that way um and so yeah I'm just on the lookout for any sort of special project that comes on my table and seeing how I can assist um and so at the moment it's just I'm taking each year as it comes each year there's one or two big projects that I'll work with and then all the things that I've mentioned will filter in between Mm -hmm. oh I love it Okay, so backing way up, I now have so many follow-up questions. Um, (laughs) Backing way up, uh, you know, it's a lot of the time when you hear stories like this, it's someone who was in a nine-to-five corporate job that they absolutely hated. They were miserable in the job, and that makes leaving really easy. But it sounds like you actually really enjoyed what you did. So how was it? Like, how did you make that decision to to actually exit a job that you, like, theoretically was actually, like, good? Yeah, yeah, and I it was an incredible journey that that stage in my life. I think it, it to put it simply, it just felt like it ran its course. There was no, and you know, I think this is such such a key messaging as well. Is like often, I think often why people are so afraid of change is because it often comes out of necessity. Something happens, and then they're like oh my gosh, I have to change because I can't do what I was doing anymore because I became broke or because it hurt me or I don't know what. So I have to change. And they're like, oh, this is so scary. As opposed to eliciting change out of a space of actually things are okay, but change would be good. Mm -hmm. Um, I could learn something new from this change. So for me, um, it just there's just an inner feeling and knowing. 
And then also having started that journey of adventure and what that was giving me, I'd never, I'd never had that exchange of energy before and realized that was something I wanted to explore more. So it was more chasing something that I was curious about as opposed to leaving something I hated. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I really like the idea that things you don't need to be at like a, a rock bottom or in a like have something change on you to decide to make a change because I think that's how yeah. that's how a lot of the the narratives around these big adventures and stuff go which isn't bad but I think you know a lot of us that are just kind of like just cruising along normally like it's it's also you can have a big change then too. Yeah, <laughs> Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of come back to is uh, talking about anxiety and how adventure seems like it would be anxiety provoking, but actually like isn't. And what I'm kind of thinking is, do you think part of that's because like when you are doing these adventures, you're very much focused on the present and like you might still have worries or like concerns about what's happening in the moment, but it's very much like you're just right there, you're in it versus, you know, when you're sitting at your je- like desk job thinking about like, you know, why hasn't this person texted me or like, did, what did this email mean? It's all very like future focused and like kind of outside of yourself. Thoughts? 100%. Yeah, I think we can relate on that. Um, yeah, I mean, and obviously there are degrees of mental health struggles and battles where depression is very different to anxiety, although they can often be linked. And I'm not against medication. I think it can be a stepping point, a stepping block. Uh, but ultimately I think you, one has to take initiative to try, get the toolbox and that can only come from you. And again, I just want to say like extreme mental health things like, like bipolar and all of that, like I can't comment on that. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't want to, uh, but from my experience, um, the depression, I got the help, um, through medication and then I had a super supportive family. And then that kind of started evolving into more of an anxiety. And it was all about like the pressures and, um, you know, and thinking about the future or the past. So you're not in the present moment. And again, like that's exactly what adventure is because um, you, the adventures are challenging you to a degree where you have to stay so focused because it could end really badly if you don't. And, um, and it's that power of the present moment that just keeps you so um so focused mm-hmm. and I'm very glad that you just mentioned both the medication and working with a therapist because I do think while I'm like such a huge fan of adventure and nature and being outdoors and moving your body as like a help to these things uh we we've had experts on before that always say like running is not your therapy like it is not a substitute for it Um, so I do think it is really important to kind of mention like there's a difference between doing these adventures as like this very empowering kind of style that you're doing them versus like using them almost like as a tool to like run away from what's actually going on in your life yep escapism versus um kind of more acknowledgement I guess Mm -hmm. And that's why you are like one can often find as well, like it can be another form of addiction. <laughs> yes, you know? absolutely. So to to also have those conversations and be like, how do you feel if you don't push yourself on a day or two or three? A lot of people who are only used to pushing themselves actually freak out when they don't. 
And that's a form of mental health struggle that needs to be also addressed and looked at. Mm-hmm. And I've been there as well. Like I've taken like more than one rest day in a week and I've been like, what is happening? Like, I don't feel okay. Uh, but it was just also how the, the mental health struggle was translating in my life at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always, it's always just being so conscious of what's happening. And also then I think they're not judging it and just yes. allowing yourself to sit with that emotion and that feeling and just talking to someone else about it, even if it's just a friend. I mean, like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. And it and it could sound completely silly, but you have hopefully a friendship group or a family member that can just meet you at that irrational place, you know, and just hold space. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Okay. We've mentioned seven summits a few times here. Give us an overview of what the heck the seven summits are for people who are not familiar. Sure. So the seven summits is the highest mountain on each continent of the planet, of the earth, of planet earth. Planet earth. <laughs> planet earth. Um, and, you know, it in, so that includes Mount Everest in Nepal. And, you know, I can list them. So in Africa, Kilimanjaro, the highest, actually the highest freestanding mountain in the world, which is interesting. So when you climb in Kili, there are no other mountains around you, attached to Kilimanjaro or around you that are taller than you. Um, and which is, yeah, just having this freestanding mountain is very, very fascinating experience. And then um, you've got Aconcagua in South America, which is the highest mountain in the Southern Hemisphere, but then obviously the highest mountain in South America. And then in North America, you have Denali, also known as Mount McKinley back in the day. And the interesting thing about Mount Denali is it's some people's experience on Mount Denali say it's harder than Everest. So Mount Denali is um, in Alaska and very remote and very different style of climbing. Like each mountain offers something different and uh, you can't really compare the one to the other. So with Mount Mount Denali, it's completely self-supported. So you're on a rope team of like three, maybe bigger team of like 10 or 12, but rope teams of three to four to, you know, if you, for, for safety purposes, if you fall into a crevasse. You're carrying sleds with gear of like 30 kgs. Uh, sorry, I don't do pounds. Times by almost, I think, 2.2. A lot. Times 2.2. Mm-hmm. And then a, a backpack of, you know, 20, 20 kgs as well. And you, you arrive at camp, everyone sets up, you know, every, you know, you don't have additional help from like um, Sherpa guides and all of that. So it can be, it's very physical, which I quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then also the weather is so unpredictable um, and and almost like way more unpredictable than, than Mount Everest. So with Denali, it's like if there's a, a storm and a bad, you know, a weather roll in, you, you, almost, you almost have to turn around and can't summit um, because you only have about three weeks to climb uh, based on permits and based on like the food supplies that you bring in um and all of that whereas mount everest is so extremely high uh you have the additional support of sherpa um so you do carry you know a reasonable amount of gear but you know you you don't have to set up the tent um and so that's a reality so the 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 mount denali can be harder than mount everest i i'm undecided to be honest it's because nothing, at the end of the day, 
you have to take those steps on Everest. No one can do it for you. Mm-hmm. And that altitude, when you reach the death zone, 8,000 meters and up, so again, I don't know if you'd, your body is slowly dying. Your organs are shutting down. Nothing can take away, take that away, you know, like no help. No, it's like you are experiencing that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and then you've got like Mount Everest in Asia um, and Mount Vincent in Antarctica, which is also just a wild experience. Um, I say Antarctica is like mother nature in her birthday suit. So it's like, <laughs> it's like it. just this wild, wild. Every time something in my life is like going wrong, I'm just like, you've been to Antarctica. Like how wild is that? Like, it's just so grateful for that opportunity. Um, and I did end up getting a little bit of frost right there the temperatures were just so cold and that was even we had like good weather and I still managed so Mount Vincent in Antarctica was definitely was definitely colder than my experience on Mount Everest which was also fascinating and then uh in Australia you've got Mount Kosciuszko or uh Carson's Pyramid and why I say oh is because the, the, the traditional like from years ago it was around Kosciuszko in Australia but the peak is only like two just over 2,000 meters Australia being a continent. But then the purists were like, hey, that's not really like a mountain. <laughs> you can like, it's a trekking peak. So then they wanted, they expanded the area to say, okay, let's make it Oceania. And that includes Papua New Guinea. And then there's a peak there called Carson's Pyramid, which is more technical. It's about 4,800 meters. Um, but now what's happened is that that mountain's been closed for about three years due to tribal war and civil unrest. So people are getting kidnapped. Um, it's just very unstable. So, so the climbing community have kind of reverted back to using um, Kosciuszko in Australia as as the seventh. So, yeah, that and so that's a brief summary. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, I have to ask. Like, is it weird having a Sherpa guide with you? Like, what is that experience like? Because I feel like I just can't even really fathom how that feels (laughs) yeah so also some context around that and I love talking about this is so the term Sherpa is actually doesn't mean like porter the term Sherpa is where a lot of the Nepalese come from so it's like the community so on their passport it will even say like Pasang Sherpa so it's like part of their heritage so that's quite cool to to acknowledge that and then I have formed so many close friendships with with these with my Sherpa brothers it's like this next level bond that you I see them as a climbing partner mm-hmm. so so that's how I see it so I want to be able to show up for them just how they can show up for me so I also I want to like that's just how like hopefully most climbers have share the sentiment but not everyone does but you can't get caught up with everyone else's thoughts and styles so you form a friendship with a new climber and um and and so it's like a body system so like when you both have oxygen you know the oxygen's in your backpack so you you can't change it yourself or check each or check each other's flow rates or check how much oxygen there is in each bottle they can't do that alone you know so it's like also like what can I do hey I've got extra snacks they often don't take because that's also I'm like hey do you want some of my food do you want some of my water like it's mutual for me the climbing experience with with all the guys that I've climbed with and um 
and going forward now, like Pasang, who I climbed with two years ago, he started his own guiding company. So often when I have clients, I will link up with him and we'll do it together. So it's about the opportunities you can create with with um with the Sherpa guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, I love that. I think it's just kind of like a, a good one to acknowledge because I think it's such an interesting yeah. differentiation between like a, a Denali versus an Everest. And I'm glad you mentioned like the amount of stuff you have to carry up Denali because I think Everest, I'm going to say Everest gets all the credit for being like yeah. the mountain to climb. Um, but as you're talking these through, I'm like, oh, Denali actually seems like it might be. Yeah. Might be right up there. Um, so and, and to that, I would be super intrigued to see the stats yeah. on women climbers for yes. both Yes. Because when I was on Denali, my team, we were 11 and I was the only female on my team. And then when I was climbing, I saw maybe three other female, one guide, and maybe one or two others. Um, so, so because of its pure physicality, I guess, but, um, and then I, I, I think, I, yeah, I think a few people who have climbed Everest have not necessarily done Denali, although they may have climbed some other 7,000 meter peaks in Nepal, uh, which are also super challenging. But then again, you don't have to carry all your own stuff. Although there are also people who climb Everest who don't use Sherpa, who climb, you know, I mean, you've got the athletes, uh, Killian, you know, all of them, they climb Everest and all these other peaks. So, uh, and they, they do it um, Alpine style, which means just fast and light and, they climatized before maybe on another peak and so there's so many different variations in which you can experience a high altitude climb which is super cool mm-hmm. okay you, you did just hit on a point here of being one of the the few women i mean first of all is there a peak that seemed to have more women on it um and second i mean what is it what is it like being the the only woman on there do you feel like the experience is is different obviously you, you don't know if the experience is different given that you have not had the the guy experience but does it feel like does it feel like you're treated differently as you're doing these adventures I haven't had any of those experiences um which is super cool I've always I'm like pretty chill so I don't really I really don't mind like peeing in front of a guy like it's like okay I'm gonna pee like turn around but I'm gonna pee right here like you do what you need to do you know and I think that's and, and I understand that's not the same like culturally like how you've been brought up or all of that kind of stuff you know um and so I I I don't mind and I wasn't treated differently uh, I feel like if I wasn't as strong as I was like it would have been I would have felt if I couldn't carry what they carried it would have made me feel potentially like less um so I, I haven't really like navigated that within myself but I was super proud like all the group gear we divvied it up equally we carried it equally I, I was like pretty like felt good within the group um and in general like my climbing experiences I haven't had any team members that have been like oof like ruining the experience or like I've been super lucky because I have heard some stories you're like oh oof you know like anyway but I've been quite lucky and um and also, like, it was super cool, like, on the Denali expedition, like, the one guy was saying, he was like, it's so much nicer having some women on the team because it, like, changes the dynamics. Like, I don't think the dudes necessarily just want to be, like, a group of dudes climbing, you know. So it was cool to hear that from him. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess that's mm-hmm. 
would have to say on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how does one get strong enough to carry these giant packs and, you know, be, we'll talk about altitude in a second, but just more of like the, the strength and the hiking side of it. How do you train for an expedition like this? Yeah. I mean, well, for me, uh, I'm tall and I've always felt like that is a slight advantage despite I'm not like, um, I'm pretty lean, but I've got like, like strengths. I just feel like you just immediately at a disadvantage if you're shorter, no matter how strong you are. I mean, it's just science. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a compact Again, human. A lot of the, a couple of the women guides that I know who are quite like, uh, you know, uh, like I've seen them around, they're all pretty short, um, but they're, they're so strong. Um, and, and their packs are like, you know, if you put the pack next to them, it's like half the size of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So no, well, I, I and mean, running, I notice this all the time. Like if I'm, you know, I can run as fast as most of the guys around me, but the second we actually hit a hill and start hiking it, suddenly yeah. they're just so far ahead of me because their legs are longer. So their, their hiking strides are longer yes. and I can't compete with that. Interesting. Yes, that makes sense. So, so, I mean, you just got to train. So like I would, you know, we have peaks at home that um I would just throw on a backpack with you know 20 30 kgs and just hike up you know you just have to do it um and pull the sleds and it, I didn't actually practice with any sort of sleds can't really I know some people do the whole like they tie they do the tires around their waist you know well they pull this rope around the tires the rope goes around your waist and then the tire gets dragged I never did that um um but so the interesting thing about altitude as well is a lot of the smaller humans actually do quite well from a physiological point of view. Also, like the bigger muscles you have, you know, muscles require more oxygen to function. So as soon as there's less oxygen, your muscles aren't working. So the, the taller and the taller the human sometimes or the bigger the human from a muscle point of view it can actually be disadvantageous for high altitude. So that's also very interesting from a science point of view. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, if you get those elite athletes that also do the high altitude things, like a lot of the good high altitude men climbers. Uh, and also like, if you look at Hilary Nelson and all of them, you know, they're not big humans. They're just mm. power and efficient. Um, and that, you know, you can use systems where you, you, you don't have to carry all the gear at once. You can cash gear carry half the load cash it up higher come back carry the rest up or if you've already acclimatized before you don't have to climb it at such a slow rate um so then you can almost be like okay there's a weather window and because they're such a strong such strong athletes they can go for longer and then they can climb the peak faster and carry less so that's like more alpine style which is also cool with denali there's just like you in your group and um and you you know to be safe you want to have enough food enough gear and that's why those first few days your your loads are super heavy until you get to about like camp one two then you start doing the the caching as well but and you drop the sled but the packs are still like 30 kgs um but what people are, are also doing uh, they, and I've done it once with my Everest Lot. So when I, I did an Everest Lotsi back-to-back summit. So Lotsi is uh, the fourth highest mountain in the world. 
And I wanted to do that double summit because it was like a little ego thing, which is fine. I always say a little bit ego is good because mm-hmm. um, no no South African had done that double summit. And yeah, no South African had no South African woman had climbed um, Lotsi. But for me, the double summit is because often the men set the records first, especially in the field of mountaineering. So I really wanted to have this like kind of little record for South Africa. Um, so that was driving that. But I say, you know, like Lotsi, was such a soulful mountain. Like Everest is like a little bit of the ego mountain, but Lotsi is just so soulful, that soulful, that cool world. Have you watched the documentary where Hillary and her um the late Hillary and her partner um ski down the Lotsi Kulwa? It's no. a North Face documentary. North Face North Face documentary, the first ski descent of Lotsi. So they they climbed up with their skis. Um, and then they skied down this quad, which is like, it's such an incredible experience. And then the whole time you're climbing Lotsi, you get to witness the sun rise on the slopes of Everest. So to your left, you have that scene. To the right, you have like the moon rising. It's just like wild. Anyway, I diverge. So why I could climb Lotsi like back to back within 24 hours is because I've put in the time to acclimatize already for Everest. So people are doing these... Um, you can climb a few 8,000ers or high high altitude peaks in a row. You just have to have done, taken a reasonable amount of time to do one and then you can do the, the rest pretty fast. So the, how the season works with Denali, it falls kind of straight after Everest. So people summit Everest and then they fly straight on and then they can climb Denali more alpine style, lighter, um, less gear and do it in a shorter period of time. They've just got to time the weather perfectly and be like, okay, I'm going to go now. Um, so that is also just a little, little bit of science and how it works with altitude and how you can, you know, climb in different styles and why you would climb in different styles. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned acclimating to altitude, what does that look like? Does that just mean getting to the base camp and like staying there for a bit? Or do you do any kind of like breath work or stuff like off the mountain, like prior to these? How do you handle the acclimation stuff? You know, well, the first thing about about altitude is that you actually don't know how your body's going to react prior to having ever climbed a high altitude mountain. So first you just get experienced to altitude, so like trekking peak, Kilimanjaro how did your body adapt how did it feel and then you kind of have a benchmark um and then I don't personally do breath work or anything like that I think something that's hugely advantageous is if you do work on your ability to utilize your lung capacity and how to there's so much research I just haven't given it enough of my energy and time but I know that it's so powerful and general breath in general is just a game changer um and um so personally I don't focus too much on that although I have dabbled um and then once you get to the peak so what the trekking into any peak um or the first few days it's kind of important to take it quite slowly as your body's just adjusting and simple things like hydrating excessive amounts before and during really helps like it's those simple things and then um you then you it's this whole concept of climbing high, sleeping low. So you can't just shoot from the summit if you aren't acclimatized. You need to climb up a bit higher, maybe sleep at a higher camp, and then you come back down. And then you rest a few days. You maybe trek around the area. You very rarely want to be too stationary um, in one area. You actually just want some some movement of some sort that helps the production of the red blood cells. Um, 
but base camp, Everest base camp, is just such a tricky altitude because it's at 5,500 meters again. Sorry, don't know the feet. But it's at this altitude where uh, your body is just actually not, not getting, you're not, it's not benefiting you being at that altitude. Just being at that mm -hmm. altitude, it's too high to actually reap any sort of benefits. Like when athletes do train at altitude or live at altitude, it's usually between like two and 3,000 meters like the height of flag flag stuff in arizona like that's quite a big hub for athletes that's where you get a lot of the benefits um but then at at base everest base camp you're just like also again like if you were to get sick you're just going to get sicker very rarely right. can get back so your your emphasis on hygiene and just staying healthy is so important on on, on big high altitude mountaineering mountaineering as well because you just can't recover um so acclimatization back to your question it takes a while to to do that process so an everest expedition can take six to eight weeks um because you also buffer in because you buffer in extra days so you do the trekking in which is 10 days and then you know you do some training around camp or you do a few hikes around base camp and then you like scope out a good weather window for rotation it's called rotations you climb up and up the mountain, come down the mountain, you, 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 you rest up a bit, you play around a bit, and then you kind of do the same thing again. And then you like also just wait for the right weather. So you have that, those buffer days built into a program like that, but any sort of high altitude mountaineering, if you're arriving on the mountain, not acclimatized, it'll take a while to get there. There's research with a hypoxic tense as well that you can put over your bed. Um, again, it's not, and that can go up to um, like 7,000 meters or 6,000. 6, but again, it does not, it, do, it doesn't mimic altitude in its entirety. Uh, it just, it just takes, it, 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 it uh, incorporates CO2. So it doesn't incorporate pressure. Um, so that's the difference. So again, and also it's like a lot of controversy around it because like, you know, pre-expedition, you want to be climbing a lot, um, you want to be training a lot, and then you need to recover really well. So if you're sleeping in a hypoxic tent, you're actually not recovering properly. So you might not, your training might not be optimized. So it's quite a big balance between if you want to use a tent, how to incorporate that properly. Um, so I just think, you know, the best is to, if you, is to acclimatize on the mountain and then potentially, if you have capacity, once you're climatized, why not climb one or two other mountains after that? I like that. Be a, be efficient with your, yeah. once you're acclimatized, really use that. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Kind of a weird question. Were there any like practical things that were surprising after your first, you know, first adventure expedition? Like all I'm thinking as you're talking about, like this can take, you know, a few weeks. I'm like, how often are you getting to, you know, shower? What's, what's yeah. the washroom situation like here? How much, how much are you like changing? Like, you know, all of your clothes and stuff. Like what is, what is like the real, like what it's actually like outside of the breathtaking views and like the, you know, spiritual journey. Yeah. Well, you know, for the most part, because it's so cold, it's, I don't find, you don't get like super dirty. Um, but again, it's different for, so with Aconcagua, 7,000 meters, um, it's, it can be quite a dusty mountain. So I feel like probably, I was probably quite dirty then. So that's like 
two weeks that you don't shower for. But then again, you could potentially shower at the base camp facility of any mountain, mainly Aconcagua or Everest Base Camp. They do have some sort of water system that you can wipe down. So, so Everest as well, you're not really going longer than um, a week to 10 days without some sort of access to water to like wash down. Denali was the longest, was almost three weeks without showering or anything. You have moments where you, if it's a good day, you know, you just like dibs the tent for like 20 minutes being like, no one come in, I'm getting naked and I'm going to be using my wet wipes. <laughs> and that's, that's how it goes. I'm never fine. I mean, you do get a couple. I mean, I've climbed with some, some boys that are a bit younger and they kind of smell really bad. It's like, <laughs> you want to use some of my wet wipes? No, but it's just part of it, you know, you you kind of hope that everyone can take care of themselves, but you also understand you're in the mountains and you can't exactly get like pretentious about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Talk me through what the, like how long it takes to plan one of these adventures and like the full execution from start to finish. Like what does the planning process, if I'm just like, I want to climb Denali, what does that look like? Cause I yeah, imagine it's I- not just like how to climb Denali on Google and like, boom, I'm done. No, I mean, um, no expedition is the same. And so I guess it just comes down to like, okay, if you pick a certain mountain that you would like, let's say Denali, it's like, firstly, you have to assess like, am I a novice or do I have experience? If I'm a novice, okay, what peaks are good progression to climb Denali? Well, like also get, I would say before that all, like, what is your why? Like, why do you want to climb this mountain? And, and like unpack that for a while. <laughs> and then I'd be like, okay, these reasons are pretty, pretty, like, I feel quite aligned to them. They, they serve me. They, they're part of my mission and who I want to be, not just like, oh, because I want to beat this person and they did it then. And, uh, you know, and then it's like, oh, shit, will probably not work out. Uh, but, you know, if, if you really think it's something that's going to just be uh, life-changing for yourself and then, then and let's say you're a novice, then it's like, okay, what peaks are recommended? Well, like a first first good step as well, what I did is I started reaching out to all the South Africans who had climbed uh, that peak specifically or peaks that I wanted to get to. By reaching out to them, I could have coffee with them and get to hear their, their stories firsthand. So then I am developing this little book of knowledge um, and, and that was very valuable. And then progression, everything's about progression and uh, the mountains deserve that from a respect point of view. You never want to show up to a mountain completely unprepared. So what does that preparation look like? And that can be different for every mountain, but that would be a necessary step in terms of prep to the mountain. And then logistics as well, you know, you build that up through like, like me, like climbing with different groups, climbing with different people, what worked for me, what didn't. And then you navigate through that learning process, like any sport, really, it's just like, and then what works for you may not work for someone else. So, and so it's just about becoming curious and being, being responsible and um, just always checking in with your why, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And, um, and running with that. I really like the idea of kind of looking for starter mountains um, <laughs> to, to try out before, before hitting the big one. And I mean, I think this speaks to, uh, you know, these things really should be things that take a while to plan and prepare for versus kind of an impatience of like, I want to go climb it now. Um, the, the journey to getting there should really be a like big chunk of 
like the, the, the thing as a whole. Exactly. I love that. Um, okay. So some of your work prior to this and even now is still in the sustainability space. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, these adventures and, you know, whether it's bike touring or this kind of stuff or run, even running, like, how do you balance the ideas of sustainability with, you know, getting to go on these adventures? Because I think, I think you can hold them together, but it's definitely yeah. tricky. Yeah. And I think it's, re- it's such a necessary conversation to have. And, you know, one can get overwhelmed with like, what is the right thing to do or people judging or people, At the end of the day, I think a big message I also wanted to say is like being able to adventure and do what we do is such a privilege, it's such a privilege. And, and to always be acutely aware of the bigger picture. And for me, it's like, okay, then how can I use the adventure to be a platform to bring about change in other ways? So that has been my big why, whether it's like linking it back to, to raising funds for, for my charities here in South Africa. I mean, I, I'm sure everyone knows how much, how much poverty is in South Africa and how much help is needed. So if it can be used as a bench, as a platform to do that and bring it, bring about change like that, or, as you know, having just having the conversations around mental health and what what we can do, not letting mental health um, dictate what you can and can't do. Um, I think that's a very important conversation to have. And and then you know, at the end of the day, to get to destinations, it's gonna be you're gonna have to fly there most of the time. Some people do some gnarly things about like biking to every summit and all of that, and you can't do it all. And as well like I'm plant-based but it's never a narrative I push on anyone because it's like if you can just live a conscious life and do the best you can do and that can look and translate in so many different ways and someone may want to push their agenda or not but it's like how can you stay true to your values and try the best to make a difference no one's perfect but if we can all just try to do something a little better I think that's just a great formula. I love that. I love that. Okay. And last thing I wanted to touch on, I mean, we could talk about any one of these climbs for like hours, obviously, but as a whole, I mean, what does it look like when you, you finish either one of these climbs or when you've hit all seven, because I think the come down from Mm -hmm. these, as far as like the mental side of it goes, it's huge. Like, like coming back to the why that you just mentioned. Yeah. The, the bit of like, okay, so that's done. Yeah. Now what? So how do you prepare for that? And how has that been for you? Yeah. And you know, it actually, this, this conversation links quite nicely back to the very first thing we spoke about. And that is where do you place your identity? And that's something I've had to work on a lot because it happened. I had an unsuccessful Everest expedition actually. It was quite wild in 2021 uh, there was a, we got to camp four, uh, uh, the last camp, 8,000 meters, like one push, like a, you would, you very close to the summit close. I mean, it's still like freaking hard, but there's cyclone rolled in. Uh, there was these cyclones that were coming that were so unpredicted. Like it wasn't in any of the forecasts. There were some teams going out, some turning around. There was a lot of confusion. It was a year just after COVID. We were getting reports from base camp that pe- so many people were getting tested with COVID. There's so much fear on the mountain. People didn't know what to do from so many different aspects, COVID, cyclone, everything. So at the end of the day, like, uh, it was, our, our expedition was called off at that point. And 
navigating that because I think a lot of the time when we have these big goals and adventures, we like, we're like, um, when I do Everest, then I know I can do this. I can launch this. I can speak about this. This will kickstart my career in this way. And you've placed so much of your identity and your then I can on this single expedition or single adventure. And I think that is that is a tricky place to play in. And I think what I found up until that point is, you know, how many like sacrifices I made along the way um, to be like, okay, now I just need like focus, focus, focus. But it's like, how can, because such big e expeditions and adventures do require a lot of focus and energy. And, but I think like for me personally, if I can incorporate more balance, and I know it's kind of like a cliche thing, but I think that'll kind of, it just served me better. So after that expedition being like, okay, kind of re-strategizing like, okay, who am I? And not to be so focused on that that summit. Um, so then the calm down after you know, adventures that don't work out or summits that don't work out. And even after that, you know, like, cause like media were following me and cause it was like a big deal back here. And I was like, initially I was like, no, I don't like, I didn't summit. Like, I know it was, I didn't think I like failed myself. It wasn't like I had this negative self-talk, but, but ultimately it didn't work out how I wanted it to work out. And I, I felt like oh, I, I have nothing to say to media. And then I, I processed that luckily in a reasonably fast time and I realized holy shit you know talking about setbacks and failures are so important um and we live in a society where oh you know people have their keynote presentations about summiting Everest but like whenever I give a keynote I'm like ah, let's talk about all the shit like all the times you know you failed and let's celebrate because that's actually when we show more courage and bravery is in those moments, not the summit moments. The summit moments is physically hard, but the true courage and bravery comes from turning around, comes from actually, this is not responsible. Actually, I didn't succeed. Let's talk about it. And so I found that that was so well received. Um, and I think it's such an important part of the puzzle as an adventurer. So to then again, to circle back to your question is like, the come down how do you deal with, how do I deal with that come down it's basically just to have things in perspective realizing adventure is a privilege and being able to do this is is, is just so grateful to have these experiences and to do what I do uh, and if things don't work out or if I've summited also what you've spoken about like summiting the mountains it's like that doesn't start me and my mountains don't start and end in a specific amount of summits. Summits and then can catapult a new business opportunity, can catapult you meet certain people, maybe you want to do something along this line. So it's just seeing it as a platform for discovery and opportunities and potential, I think, to look at it like that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we have to wrap up there because that was just like the perfect answer to that question. So let everyone know where they can find you and follow along. Your Instagram is gorgeous. And even if people aren't interested in climbing mountains, they have to follow you on there because it is so awe-inspiring. Thanks. Thanks, Molly. Uh, so my Instagram is just my name, Remy Kluss, and I try to share as much as possible in there. I love to write and I love to just 
yeah, share the mountains and the magic. And for me, it's like a very spiritual and soulful experience when I climb. So I like to to share that, the wonder, the awe, the limitless energy that we can tap into through the natural world. Very, very strong believer of that. It's not a fight against the mountain. It's a dance. So it's figuring that out. And I like to share about that. So Remy Close is my Instagram. And then my my website is also RemyClose.com. And there are various ways in which we can collaborate, work together. I'm always open to the conversations. And just like, you know, how we were connected through our friend Tegan, you know, it's like so cool <laughs> that we have this group, group of like badass women doing cool things, supporting each other, putting people in, t- uh, in touch with one another and that's what it's all about so mm-hmm. um so basically yeah if anyone wants to reach out please do and we can we can chat love it oh Remy thank you so much this was such a fun inspiring conversation thank you again for having me thanks so much for tuning in to the consummate athlete podcast if you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox. 